0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We will be studying John chapter 21 this morning. John chapter 21. I feel like I'm going to make everybody move forward three rows. Or I'll just walk down there and teach from down there. Oh, stay where you are. I'm relaxed. That's all right. We're almost back row Baptists at this point. This is something else. John chapter 21. We, let's see, we've been here two weeks already in this chapter. And uh, we've set the table a little bit. This is the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples. Verse 14 tells us this. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And because we have two other times that are recorded for us in the previous chapter, uh, the upper room on Resurrection Sunday, and uh, then eight days after that, that's the, the, the first time was when Thomas was absent. That was in the upper room on Resurrection Sunday. And then the second time was eight days later also recorded in John chapter 20. So both of those are explicitly spelled out. And now we have this event that's spelled out on, uh, and told that it is the third time. So there are other appearances, for example, the Emmaus Road disciples, the women of the tomb, uh, other appearances on the mountaintop where he gives the Great Commission, for example. Um, the Great Commission is not recorded in the Gospel of John. You get that in the Synoptic Gospels. All right, But we have to put these things together in a sequence. And... Verses like verse 14 here help us to put it into the sequence. We know that the Great Commission mountaintop message has not happened yet because this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples. So this allows us then to put the Great Commission uh, message in appearance and, and that after this event. It helps us to put these in the appropriate sequence in any event. This chapter is unique to John and describes a third particular manifestation of Jesus to seven particular disciples. And this is what we're dealing with. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the opportunity to confess any sin that you need to deal with privately in your priesthood before the Lord. Make sure you're in fellowship and humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice over the opportunity this morning to assemble together. Father, we ask for distractions to be set aside for a hedge of protection around us. Father, that for this time that you have provided, we would have maximum concentration, that our eyes would be fixed firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would have ears to hear and a heart to understand, Father. I pray that it's with humility that we might receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. Father, bless us on this day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We dealt with uh, two weeks ago and then last week the, uh, the fishing trip here. Uh, now, they had been told to go into Galilee. The women on Resurrection Sunday had received, when they saw the Lord, the Lord uh, sent them to the disciples and said, tell them that I'm going ahead of them into Galilee and that they are to meet me there, wait for me there. And uh, so it makes sense that they would be in Galilee or nearby. This this is where the Sea of Tiberias is located, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And um, interestingly enough, uh, either they get tired of waiting or uh, whatever else is happening. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. All right. In verse three. And so they said to him, well, we will also come with you. And so only seven, I don't know why the other five couldn't make it or maybe they didn't care to go fishing or what have you. Uh, doesn't tell us and doesn't matter, but these are the seven and they are out all night fishing and they have no success, no success fishing. And so in the morning as uh, day is now breaking, Jesus, verse four, Jesus stood on the beach. The disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And we don't know how this affected. You know, if it was just uh, uh, he wore a different face, he wore a different appearance, similar to when Mary Magdalene in the garden thought he was the gardener, didn't recognize him. The two disciples on the Emmaus Road didn't recognize him, not until he started breaking bread and feeding them. Um, then they recognized him. Same thing here. Uh We don't know why he chose to do this at various points in his resurrection ministry other than as i pointed out i believe it's it's illustrative it, it illustrates for you and i what we uh, might encounter when we encounter the lord and don't recognize that it's him when he is at work in particular open door opportunities we come face to face with folks that that uh, that we have opportunities and jesus is in those opportunities the lord is in those work assignments and we need to be able to recognize it when the initial appearance might not be very um, (laughs) Jesus-like. All right. Nevertheless, if the Lord is in it, we need to be humble before it and uh, and be faithful. And so, in any event, uh, we recognize in verse 7 that uh, the Apostle John is the one that's labeled here the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He puts on his outer garment, for he had been stripped for work, and he throws himself into the sea. All right, now if uh, you were with us, we've already covered point one, the context for this. Uh, Point two, we looked at the authorship. There is a legitimate question with respect to this chapter, if this chapter was written by the same author that wrote the first 20 chapters, and uh, I won't go back over that. I I believe it was written by the Apostle John, uh, but I believe it may have had a period of time after he finished chapter 20, because the ending of chapter 20 is the ending of a book. It's a book ending. Uh, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ son of God and that believing you may have life in his name that's a beautiful ending not just to chapter 20 but to the whole book to let you know that this gospel this gospel is a powerful evangelism tool you can put this gospel in people's hands we've got them out there in in the foyer get those living gospel booklets and put them in people's hands and say you know read through there there's nothing like the Gospel of John for somebody that's, that's interested, somebody that's curious, that uh, gives them that gospel information. And then chapter 21 has a similar ending. It's a little bit expanded, um, 21, 25. Uh, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the book that would be written. And that seems to be a restatement of the ending from chapter 20, slightly expanded, slightly adjusted. And uh, it's given rise to some thought that perhaps this chapter was added later by a different writer, a different disciple, maybe a student of John's that added this in later years, Uh, particularly because of verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. And then there's speculation that maybe this was a student of John's or uh, a disciple there and so forth. Anyway, we uh, discussed that a couple weeks ago. You've got the notes. And uh, as I said, I believe that uh, it is John's authorship, possibly, though, uh, separated by a number of years from when he wrote the first 20 chapters. Under point three, we saw their secular failure. These professionals had failed at their secular work. These are professional fishermen, and maybe a little rusty by now, all right, if they've been out of uh, <laughs> out of practice for three and a half years, following Jesus around. Uh, but nevertheless, just like happened in the Luke 5 episode, uh, they've reached morning and have nothing to show for all their work throughout the night. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story there, too, and uh, something that will hit a man pretty hard if his if his uh, livelihood is uh, a particular profession and then he has no results from it, no success with it, no satisfaction through it. Uh, the Lord uses those circumstances to really get a man's attention. Under point four, jesus initiated the first men's breakfast tradition okay uh i don't know why this is popular in different aspects people ask me you know when are we going to have another one when are we going to have another one and well didn't we just have one like four years ago you 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 want another one all right the men's the first men's breakfast tradition okay um if, if there's value in that all right if there's value in that if uh you know we can take the time to do it um you know, we can we can add more. I, don't get me. I could go a whole hour now on my philosophy of men's breakfast traditions, but <laughs> but there it is. You know, we, we we teach 260 times a year around here. If you think one moral help, then all right. You know, that uh, you've only made it it's about 40 of the 260 that we have. So let's you know talk about that. In any event, he serves them breakfast. He doesn't need the fish that they failed to catch. And even the fish that they finally do catch when he produces the miracle and says, well, cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat. And uh, as soon as they do, they haul in this huge number of fish, okay? And, uh, you know, I don't know if what they were doing wrong before, nothing. It, just, it was part of the miracle. It was part of God's sovereignty that kept them from catching anything throughout the night so that on this occasion, um, Jesus could uh, could bring this uh, this great haul in and uh many applications there many exhortations there with respect to you know evangelism ministries or other things and you get no results so what do you do do you just give up and quit giving the gospel to people you know because you may go 20 years and then all of a sudden here comes the greatest harvest you ever could have imagined see that's the lord's business that's not our business I, i i read about these missionaries that spend decades in in their countries before they get their first their first convert and, and some folks are critical of that. And they say, well, what a waste of resources. They should have been elsewhere. And I think it's, you know, the Lord's in charge of that. They were where the Lord wanted them to be. They were under conviction. And then, all right, 20 years later, they get their first convert. And uh, is is an eternal soul not worth 20 years? <laughs> you know, and uh, different aspects there. All right, now in this breakfast, he already has, they, they finally get to the beach. They haven't even hauled the fish in yet. And he already has a fire built, the fish are on the grill he's got some bread to go with the fish probably it's it's this particular there's a jewish spread they make with fish that they can uh make uh i forget what it's called there's a hebrew name for it but they put this fish spread on the on the bread and that's their that's their breakfast meal and uh and here's the lord who's already made provision for that all right a couple of principles there he doesn't need what we're bringing uh, Jesus has the fish and bread already cooking before the disciples arrive with their catch. The fish and the loaf was sufficient to feed everybody. I, I find the singular uses interesting. Uh, this may very well be another multiplication incident, like when he fed the five thousand, when he fed the four thousand. Uh, there were at least two multiplication incidents. Uh, if this is a, another one, then this is the third multiplication incident. Uh, but uh, I think the singular term for fish and the singular term for bread is uh, is interesting. Uh, when they got out of the in verse nine, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and a fish placed on it and a bread. All right. And uh, Jesus says, well, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Peter drags it to the land and, and gets the good count. OK, notice the size and notice the count. And then Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And no one ventured to question him. Who are you knowing that it is the Lord? Don't ask questions. <laughs> okay? Don't ask questions. Sometimes we ask too many questions. All right. I don't like questions. I love questions. But when it's wrong to ask, then don't ask. And you ask yourself, well, when is it wrong to ask? Okay? Well, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. We, we, need to, we need to learn. We need to learn. When is the time to ask? When is not the time to ask? I, I, I can show you passages in Daniel where he asked too many questions. And the Lord said, stop, Daniel. It's not for you. All right. It's not for you. Uh, this is for the end times, and you're about to die, and your ministry is over. This is for uh, those that are coming after you. Likewise, uh, other questions are, are wrong to ask, and here they would not ask, knowing that it's the Lord. So that, There's a clue. If you already know the answer, don't ask the question. <laughs> okay. Now, why is he in disguise? They don't ask that either. Why does he not look like himself? They don't ask that either see the lord knows what he's doing the lord knows why he's doing what he's doing and if we don't understand what he's doing are we supposed to question him and say well you should do it our way no they're not going to ask they're not going to ask all right so everything we need comes from the lord even when he appears in an unfamiliar form we nevertheless know that he is our provider and then secondly everything we catch belongs to the lord Note the size and get an accurate count. Whatever our catch is, whatever our catch is, okay? Why is it important to note the size? Why is it important to get an accurate count? So that we can give the right kind of glory for what the Lord is doing. I put we in quotes because we're not the ones doing the catch. If you're the tool that leads somebody to faith in Christ, well then, praise the Lord for that, but notice you're not the one who did that. The Holy Spirit was convicting, the Father was drawing, all right. It was God's, It was the, the grace of Jesus Christ that placed that open-door ministry before you? You just happen to be the tool in His hand. And who gets the credit, the hammer or the, the hand that wields the hammer? The tool can claim no glory. But you do want to get a size, you do want to get a count, you do want to make the appropriate observation so that when you praise God, you praise Him for what He has done. And you praise Him appropriately. Great is the Lord and greatly is He to be praised. I think we want to be specific about what we praise Him for. We want to praise him for 153 fish. Not 152, not 154. We don't want to round it off and guesstimate and just say, you know, we want to have a specific number, a specific count, so that he gets the absolute glory for everything he has accomplished. Now, we talk about Peter, do you love me? This is where we left off and where we want to pick it up today. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Verses 15 through 23. So when they had finished breakfast, when they had finished breakfast, whatever they talked about during breakfast, Scripture does not record. Maybe they didn't talk about anything. They just ate silently. Who knows? When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? all right now we go through three rounds of questioning three um back and forth between the lord the third one ticks him off right the third one he's a bit miffed and he's upset Uh, he's grieved we're told peter was grieved i guess that's a good expression uh grieved because he said to him the third time do you love me why did he have to answer it three times okay well I, I teased you with this last week so you already know the answer that the, the charcoal fire is significant the uh the charcoal fire is was the setting for peter's three denials and the charcoal fire is now the setting for peter's three affirmations the only the only two places in the bible that a charcoal fire shows up right um uh you know the the, the word for charcoal the word for carbon the word for um it's it's interesting it's anthrax of all things uh in a You know, almost like the the uh, chemical warfare. But the charcoal fire was the setting for Peter's three denials in John chapter 18. And now it's the setting for Peter's three affirmations in uh, John 21, 9. And this is what's happening. The Lord's not going to let him stop with two. I love you, Lords. Right. Because two, I love you, Lords, would not uh, equal the three. I do not know the man. Right. The three. I don't know what you're talking about. The three denials. And so now he gives him a chance to completely undo that. Gives him a chance to, uh, to cut that loose. So subpoint point A, the charcoal fire was the setting for Peter's three denials, and now it's the setting for Peter's three affirmations. All right, we didn't actually turn there last week, so let's look at John 18. You got the charcoal fire. Peter also was, uh, see the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, there it is, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. So there's the setting, there's the setting. And uh, then the high priest is questioning him, and the different things there, gets sent off to uh, Annas. Down to verse 25, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, So they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, said, I am not. Problem is, is that one of the fellows standing here was related to the slave with a chopped off ear and he saw it. (laughs) He was there. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, did I not see you in the garden with him? (laughs) You know, you can deny it all you want, but you know, I saw you, I was there. Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. All right, so there's the denials. There's the charcoal fire. That's the setting. And so when John, when Jesus establishes a charcoal fire, he is reestablishing a setting, and uh, doing so in a in a context whereby he can personally address Peter. Doesn't address John. Doesn't address the other six or the other five. There's there's seven total. But Peter is the one that has to have the uh, the love affirmations because Peter is the one that had the three denials. Alright. Point B now. The interchange between Jesus and Peter contrasts four pairs of synonyms. The interchange. The interchange between Jesus and Peter features contrasts four pairs of synonyms. As we all know, we all know that I'll steal a uh, Morris Proctor routine. <laughs> that uh you know they weren't speaking English back then, right? We understand that back then everybody spoke strong's numbers. <laughs> so Jesus says to Peter, <laughs> right? Says uh Simon son of John, do you 25 me more than these, right? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I 5368 you. <laughs> All right? Isn't that great? Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's for Morris Proctor. He's kind of a funny guy. But the point is, they are, they're different words. They're different words. As they're recorded in our Greek New Testament. Now, when John wrote this, he wrote this in Greek because the entire New Testament was written in Greek. God chose the Greek language for his um, canon of Scripture after the 400 silent years. Prior to that, of course, was the Hebrew and Aramaic canon of Scripture. And so when he, when he breaks the 400 years of silence, and when he has the bride of Christ composing the 27 books of the New Testament, he chooses a Gentile language to do it. And he chooses the Greek language to do it. And that's why we have the different terms here. Now, the, the question is, what were they speaking that morning? Were they speaking Greek that morning? Not likely. All right, i i expect that they knew greek for their business dealings but they were all jewish and i expect they were and, and most of them were galilean iscariot was the only one that we think was not galilean that he was a judean rather than a galilean um what you know did they did they speak hebrew or aramaic to each other that's that's a much more likely aspect of it and so if they were indeed communicating conversing over breakfast and after breakfast if they were conversing in aramaic then what word did jesus use for love and what word did peter use for love in the question and in the response okay we don't know <laughs> we have no way to know we have no way they probably used the very same word my my suspicion is they use the same exact word they used a haf all right for example if they were speaking hebrew um And yet, that word can encompass both agape and phileo in its sense, in its its idea behind it. And if the Lord had one thing in mind, and Peter had something else in mind as they were asking and responding, then the Greek language gives a wonderful ability to relate those things with precision being written 80 years later, right? 50 years later, whatever it was. In any event. Do you love me more than these? And the, uh, the agapao question to ask and then the phileo answer to respond. But now here's the thing. Jesus switches to phileo when he asks for the third time. He switches to phileo when he, when he gives the third question. That's what really grieves Peter is the switch from agape to phileo. Because that's what Peter had been responding with, was with phileo. Which leads me now to wonder that maybe they were, in fact, speaking Greek. And if, in fact, the Lord did ask, Peter, do you agapa'omi? So, I believe with the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, the Holy Spirit recorded for us an accurate, we don't always have word-for-word quotations, even when the punctuation in our modern text makes it look like we have word-for-word quotations. Okay? They didn't write with commas and quotation marks and letters in red and <laughs> any of that. We don't always have direct verbal citations. But in this case, I believe we do, particularly with that switch to uh, agapao or to phileo that third time. All right, the first parasynonym is the agapao love versus the phileo love. Agapao love versus phileo love. Agapao is number 25 in the Strongest Concordance. Phileo is number 5368 in the Strong's Concords. They both are translated love simply because um, the English word encompasses such a broad spectrum. <laughs> doesn't have the precision that, that uh, the Greeks separated their terms. Agapao, A-G-A-P-A-O and phileo is P-H-I-L-E-O. Agapao is um, God's kind of love. Agapao is the essence of God. When we're, we're told that God is love, God is agape. God is not philos. Okay, God is agape. God is love. We agapao because He first agapaoed us. It is it is the agape of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. The fruit of the spirit is not philos. The fruit of the spirit is agape. Agapao. Uh, some pastors say that agapao is not possible for an unbeliever to exercise agapao. Uh, but I can find New Testament passages that have unbelievers as the subject of the verb, so I, I have to dispute that. Um, I would say that a, an unbeliever can agapao as an activity and can have agape as a noun, but it's not coming from the source of God. All right, It's a human analogy of it. It's a human uh, replica of it. Uh, phileo speaks of the friendship, speaks of the rapport. Okay, and that's the difference. Agapao does not take into account the merit of the object. Agapao loves the unlovely. And, and within parameters, and within boundaries, an unbeliever could do that. An unbeliever can love on an unreturned basis. An unbeliever can love even without the object being lovable. Simply because That's what agape does. Agape does not love because of the object. Agape loves because of the subject, because of the lover, because of the the character, the integrity, the thinking, the priorities of the one loving. All right. Phileo, though, does look at the object. Phileo has a connection with the object. Phileo has a rapport with the object of that love. And if it's a person, then it's it's returned. All right, or it can be, or it should be returned in a rapport love. Philos is our term for friend. All right, and so in many respects, and this is where pastors debate it and argue it and have conferences and write journal articles. Which one is is higher than the other? Okay, and and there are very uh, dominant views that say that well, agape has to be higher than philos. And then there's other people that take it the other way around. Say, no, you can't have true philosophy if you don't understand agape. They're both in tandem, and oftentimes they're used in parallel. And oftentimes they're both just absorbed into the Hebrew ahav anyway. (laughs) Okay, so maybe sometimes we put too much distinction where we we really ought to relax about it. Um, That it's not a matter of one being higher than the other. They're different, all right? They're different, and you can have them both simultaneously. We should agapao the Lord, we should philo the Lord. The Lord agapao's us and the Lord phileo's us. And the Lord scourges every son that he receives and every son that he loves. And guess what? That's phileo love. Okay? We used to, we just assume it's agapao love and, and until we turn to Timothy and we say, oh, that's agapao or, that's phileo love there. All right? So both are true and both are applied in this in this passage. And the Lord asks, do you do you love me from the perspective of your own priesthood your own soul your own thinking your own integrity in other words you're not loving me because i'm lovable you're loving me because you god's working in you to produce that quality of love this may be the toughest thing in the world and peter responds yes you know i i phileo you i have rapport with you okay and Peter's responding that way as if somehow that is above and beyond. Somehow that explains his answer and more. As if phileo is superior than agape. Okay, and That's not what the Lord asked. You realize we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're commanded to oh God. And it wasn't until I'd probably been a pastor for 10 years before I finally realized that that's a big deal. And here's why. Because we're supposed to love God apart from the fact that He's worth it. Okay? So, well, who who couldn't love God? He's awesome. He's, He's amazing. He's wonderful. God loved me first, so I love Him back. But I need to love Him back with the kind of love that He loved me. And He didn't love me because I'm worth it or I'm lovable. He loved me precisely because I wasn't lovable. He loved the world and gave His Son that I might have eternal life. The hardest thing is to love God, not because He deserves it. I think it's easy to fillet-oh God. It's easy to fillet-oh Jesus. It's easy to, to look at God and see all of His worthiness. Well, who wouldn't love that? Yeah. But to not see His worthiness, to look at God or to not look at God, to not take into account His worthiness, but to love Him entirely from my internal capacity to love him from the the perspective of the mind of christ as i'm being shaped in his image as he's developing his character to love him with true agapao love irrespective of his worthiness i think that's harder to do i think that takes a tremendous maturity Anyway, chew on that cuz this is one of the contrasts that's here, but it's not the only contrast that's here. We also have the oida versus gnosko contrast. Verbs that mean to know. Oida. Number 1492 means to know. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. All right, the verb oida. Oida interestingly enough of, of all the, the, the knowledge verbs this is a verb that um has a, a, a perfect tense most often it it speaks of the perfection of knowledge the completion of knowledge the the having seen and beheld and now locked into what i totally know it's 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 even more complete than epinosis is oida it's the fullness of that knowledge 1492 versus Gnosko in 1097. Gnosko is your basic knowledge where it's like gnosis is less than epignosis. It's it's simply knowing the facts. You know, there's a lot of things you know, but until you know it fully, you don't epignosko and you don't oida. It certainly doesn't produce any wisdom in you with the Sophia applications. And so we have those contrasts here. You know that I love me. Uh, you know that I love you. Oida. And then uh, Oida again. And then the third time, it's Oida and Gonosco. He said to him, Lord, you Oida everything, you Gnosko that I love you. And that change is interesting. and It makes me wonder if Peter's almost in a despair at that point. Tend my sheep. Okay. The uh, third contrast and I think the knowledge contrasts are important. We don't maybe stress them as often as we do the loved ones, but uh, because we are. We are to have gnosis. We're to have epinosis. We're to have oida. We're to have Sophia. Proverbs commands us to, to, to uh, acquire knowledge and with our knowledge to acquire understanding. All right. Bosco versus Poimino. Here's a contrast. Bosco versus Poimino. And in some sense, this even forms poetry, and, and it might even be that, that John was led by the Holy Spirit to write this in a poetic fashion. This could even become a, a hymn, as it were. Bosco versus Poimena, to feed or to tend or to shepherd. And the variety here is striking to the, to the sense that uh, if you've got a variety of English Bibles with you this morning, you're going to notice a variety of applications there, from New American Standard to New King James to King James to uh, NIV. And we've got an assortment of English Bible texts here this morning. But in the first application is tend, verse 15, do you love me? He said to him, tend my lambs, Bosco, Bosco. And then in the second verse, verse 16, it says, shepherd my sheep, that's poimino. And then in the third, verse 17, back to Bosco again, tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. So we have Bosco, poimino, bosco, in that order. Feed, uh, or tend, either way. Shepherd, as poimino, and then, depending on what you want to do with bosco feed or, or tend actually i like feed better than tend because bosco is ultimately just stuff food in their mouth okay feed them feed them now and there's more to shepherding than just stuffing food in their mouth and that's that's huge <laughs> particularly among doctrinal churches they think that all there is to shepherding is just stuffing food in their mouth if they get enough doctrine then they'll handle all the problems well there's more than that there's, you got to feed them, you got to water them, you got to tend them. You got to bind up the broken. You got to you got to heal the sick. You got to bring back the lost. You got to gather the scattered. Okay, the, the shepherding is more than just feeding. Any rancher will tell you that. Any shepherd will tell you that. There's, there's a, you become a, a, a veterinarian in a lot of ways. You become uh, different different things there. Some folks, though, have the mindset that just dish out enough doctrine and they're, they're, they'll be all right. That the food will shepherd. The food doesn't shepherd. Shepherds shepherd. And there's a different verb between Bosco and Poimino. So, Bosco, number 1006, we got the short O and the long O, the Omicron and the Omega there. Beta, Omicron, Sigma, Kappa, Omega, B O S K O, Bosco. Versus Poimino, P O I M A I N O, Poimino. The poimen, as a noun, is the shepherd. That's the spiritual gift. Is the poimen kai didaskalos, the pastor and teacher. That's the spiritual gift in Ephesians 4.12. The verb poimeno is the imperative. That elders and overseers are commanded to shepherd in Acts chapter 20. Elders and overseers are commanded to shepherd in um, 1 Peter chapter 5. That's incorrect elders and overseers are commanded to shepherd in Acts 20 elders are commanded to shepherd and to oversee in first peter chapter 5 that's the the correct way to say that we'll see those passages here shortly so bosco means to feed obviously that's number one on the list because not every not every sheep is injured not every sheep is sick not every sheep is the other shepherding things uh come and go as needed but feeding is a constant every sheep needs to eat all right it's only when they're broken they need to be healed it's only when they're sick they need to be uh you know the 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 shepherding activities from from uh, ezekiel 34 but they always need to eat every day they need to eat all right so those are the contrasts there and then the fourth contrast the arnion versus the probaton lambs versus sheep All right, lambs versus sheep. Arneon. A-R-N-I-O-N. Arneon it's a diminutive. A-R-N-I-O-N. Arneon, number 721 is your strongest number. Versus the more normal one, Probaton. Probaton. P-R-O-B-A-T-O-N. Probaton. Neuter nouns. I don't know why they're neuter um just because they are okay <laughs> sometimes you can explain gender sometimes you can't it's sometimes you know it's like spanish you know la mesa why is table feminine or la Puerta. why is the door feminine it's just because it is right quit asking questions <laughs> well, uh i just want to know sometimes and in different languages do different things but um A lot of times with animals, you've got a a masculine form and a feminine form. You change perro to perra, if it's a boy dog or a girl dog or whatever. But with sheep, it's just neuter, and I don't know why. Arneon versus Pravitan. And uh, and we go back and forth. We have lambs, sheep, lambs. No, lambs, sheep, sheep. Yes. Because we already had tend my lambs, tend my Arneon. And then when we come back to tend again, it's tend my probaton. Right, so in the first one is Arneon, lambs. And then it's Poimino, my probaton, sheep. And then it's uh, Bosco, my probaton, sheep. All right, so there it is. And here's our contrasts. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. Tend my sheep. Reading from the New American Standard. If you've got Holman or New King James, you've got other uh, terms. I think they use feed in the New King James. All right. So there's the uh, contrast. All right. And as we put them together, I think it's remarkable. I think what we have here is a is a uh, is a is a tri-level interesting uh, triptych. Okay. Triptit? yeah triptit, Sim- similar to what we have in first john so when uh when you get there when you get to chapter two and you start talking about the young men and the fathers and the old men all right you've got a triptit there you've got three you've got a a, a threefold classification of your flock all right you've got a triptit to apply there and here i think it's uh it's an interesting triptit. well and it also goes with a threefold affirmation so in any event Feeding and tending, lambs and sheep. They both need it. Agape and phileo, they both need it. As far as that goes. Alright, this passage. So point uh, C. This passage demonstrates Peter's place within the Bible's significant shepherding emphasis. I love this. Point C. This passage, John 21, recorded by the Apostle John, This passage demonstrates Peter's place within the Bible's significant shepherding emphasis. And it's remarkable because the Apostle John records it, but the emphasis is Peter. Same thing in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The Apostle John records it, but the emphasis is Peter. He's the leader of the twelve. And in the epistles that follow, it's first Peter five that builds on this message right here. It's not first John, second John, or third John. I think the, the Johannine epistles deal with love, they deal with um, the conflict with the evil one, but the imperative to shepherd comes in first Peter chapter five. I would not take the Johannine epistles as a a part of the Bible's significant shepherding emphasis like I do first Peter five. Now here's a string of scriptures, and I'm just going to give them to you this morning. We'll take the time that we have that remains and we'll we'll deal with as many as we can. Whatever we don't get to, uh either we will come back to it next week or we won't come back to it next week as as I'm led. Um Those are a series of chapters, not a series of verses. So I separated with Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 26, Genesis chapter 30, and Genesis chapter 37. When I introduce shepherding, I start with five chapters from Genesis. I grab two chapters from Exodus. All right, and then I go to David. Then I go to David, okay? Okay and shepherding is something and i kind of use this i created a a a set a series of sermons called significant shepherding passages um i use it if i'm a guest speaker in other churches or traveling overseas i use it in training pastors that are going to be pastors someday significant shepherding scriptures sss significant shepherding scriptures and uh if I'm going to teach shepherding, I start with five chapters in Genesis, including the first martyr. King kills Abel. Think about it. The first martyr is a shepherd. Okay? So, if you want to be a pastor, let's start there. Let's start there. Genesis 13. You've got Lot's shepherds or herdsmen are in conflict with Abraham's shepherds or herdsmen. And there's friction. There's friction. Let's let's go there. What's the best solution to the friction? Well, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Or you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Choose where you're going to take your flock. And I'll choose where I take my flock. Okay? And if they can no longer cooperate together in a proximity, then let's put some space between them. Your shepherds and my shepherds. There's principles there. We have shepherding applications in Genesis 26. Dealing with the wells and God water these sheep. And are we going to fight over the wells? The shepherding in uh, Genesis chapter 30 as Jacob has to uh, shepherd his father-in-law's flock. Flocks, right? He ends up working seven years and tricked into marrying the wrong daughter, working another seven years. and (laughs) Marrying, actually... He got tricked, all right, but he married the right daughter the first time and didn't accept that as the will of God, okay? Leah is the one who produces the line of Christ, not Rachel. Leah is the, the mother of the of the lion of the tribe of Judah, not Rachel, okay? You know, when God overrules and in his sovereignty provides you not what you think you need, but what you need, what he knows you need, we ought to be thankful and say, yes, Lord. Like we can, you know, sing in the Garth Brooks uh, unanswered prayer song, right? I mean, just thank you, Lord. Didn't marry the girl I thought I wanted to marry. This is the one I needed to marry. Anyway, I don't normally illustrate Bible doctrine with Garth Brooks, but (laughs) unanswered prayer works, okay? If I have time, I'll teach you the doctrine of uh, friends in low places, but that's something else chapter 37 more shepherding he's shepherding uh and uh the brothers are jealous of him and they throw him in the well and then um there's going to be conflict there's going to be conflict and then he ends up taking care of uh potiphar's uh joseph ends up taking care of potiphar's household and every time he says faithful he just more bad things happen yeah you know, if you, were, if you weren't humble before the Lord, you'd be tempted just to throw your hands up and say, well, forget it, Lord, I'm done. I'm serving you, I'm obedient, I'm doing everything right, and I just keep getting, <clears throat> you know, thrown down a shaft, okay? All right. Exodus 2, Exodus 3, what's Moses doing? He's watching after the flocks. He's watching after the flocks. See, these are the kind of servants that God says, I can use you. Shepherding trained Moses for the exodus. Shepherding trained David to be king. So Exodus 2, Exodus 3. And then you go to 1 Samuel. Boy, there's shepherding emphasis there. David's not at all concerned about Goliath because he's handled bears, he's handled lions. You know, how old was he when he killed his first lion? He was probably He was probably 14 when he killed Goliath or 12. Maybe he was 10 or 12 when he killed his first bear, his first lion. He wasn't at all concerned about going up against Goliath. And then he's equipped to be king. So anyway, you got the uh, shepherding emphasis there in 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17. He comes to Goliath with a, with a shepherd's equipment, with a sling, with a staff. You know, the little wolves and the smaller things, you can just chase them off and in any event. 2 um, Samuel 5. Here's one we don't think about most. Let's see. should be familiar with most of these. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Let's go to there. Because if I turn to any of these other ones, I'll I'll spend the rest of the day dealing with David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 16 and have a lot of fun with that. (coughs) And... um, there's a recognition here when david becomes king um all the tribes of israel came to david at hebron and said behold we are your bone and your flesh now previously though after saul died david didn't get the whole kingdom david just got one tribe and uh, for a period of time then ishbosheth here uh, gets the northern tribes and so forth um until Ishwasheth dies then uh, david gets all 12 tribes and so uh, behold we are your bone and your flesh previously when saul was king over us you were the one who led israel out and in and the lord said you you will shepherd my people israel and you will be a ruler over israel now notice the parallel here the tandem between shepherd and rule between shepherd and rule and i think this is a a concept that we need to identify with respect to appropriate government what is the function and role of government all right in a theocracy such as this in a non-theocracy such as a gentile nation what would be the appropriate application okay what's the application in a local church which is called a flock which has a shepherd as its head does the shepherd shepherd does the shepherd rule yes those are not inseparable those are in tandem items and so you will shepherd my people israel you will be a ruler over israel and this is where i think a lot of times you get this home church movement you get this thing going and they they don't want a shepherd they don't want rulers they want to just kind of have a uh, a loose fellowship or a bible study they want to have kind of an equality of things with every man that, that has a role and what do you think and what do you think and what do you think or this sunday's your turn next sunday's my turn and and there's no rule there's no rule and they they'll are out of front they'll tell you they, they like that that's their that's their feature that they enjoy that uh, that they're they claim that that uh, in this co-equality of everybody, that that the Lord rules them. Say, well, what they are is sheep without a shepherd. What they what they've done is they've cut out the pastor-teacher gift. They've cut out the overseer role. To have this informal home church philosophy. All right, they've, they've some of them, you know, they have no overseers, no deacons, no structure, and they've convinced themselves that organized Christianity is where it all went wrong. And that formal church is bad. So we don't want pastors. We don't want deacons. We don't want a church building. We don't want any of that. And what they've done is they've removed the shepherding and the leadership. And the sheep without shepherds, which Bible calls uh, prey. <laughs> for the wolves, P R E Y. Prey. Okay? Food. Sheep without shepherds are food, okay? For the beasts that are out there. Anyway, to shepherd my people Israel. He will be a ruler over Israel. So now there is a shepherding function in which government, the legitimate application of government uh, entails. All right. Um, okay, there's more, but we'll let that go. That's 2 Samuel chapter 5. Psalm 23, what does a shepherd do? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay, Psalm 23. This is a fun one. Did I leave my Logos up and running? I did. This is a fun one because this is the one that I taught in Ukraine. I was teaching... Um, i was teaching hebrew poetry to the uh, russian-speaking ukrainian citizens (laughs) all right so here's this american speaking texan english to russian-speaking ukrainian citizens learning hebrew poetry well, what's fun is the economy of language here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Nine English words is four Hebrew words, which I just love the economy of, of expression in Yahweh, Ro'i, Lo, Eksar. Four words it takes nine in English, okay? I just love that. Uh, but there's our word for shepherd, Ro'i. It's also the word for friend, all right? Interesting uh, expression related to that um with respect do you love me friendship love peter says lord you know i love you you know i follow you feed shepherd then be a shepherd there's a connection of shepherding and friendship that uh sometimes i think is lost in some respects okay some shepherds think they have no friends okay there's a pattern there we have to understand he makes me Lie down in green pastures. I don't want to lie down, <laughs> but I need to. Okay, He makes me. I thought it was neat at the conference when uh, we were learning about shepherding and what it requires for a sheep to, to feel comfortable enough, safe enough to lie down and how a sheep will not lie down until they know or feel or sense somehow that it is absolutely safe to do so. And the skill necessary or the comfort level necessary for the shepherd to to cause that to happen, um, he leads me beside quiet waters. See the the fold is one place, but then you actually have to go out and eat and drink and and exercise and and, that, and then come back to the fold. The imagery there that we have in John chapter ten with the sheepfold and the door and the the uh, safety of that pen at night. So lying down is rest in and quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What a powerful shepherding passage, okay? And all of these are the uh, functions of the Word of God in a local church that's taught, there's the feeding, but then is also exercised, is also rested, is also watered. All right. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, why am I going there? (laughs) I don't want to go there. That doesn't sound pleasant. That doesn't sound, let's just stay out of there. (laughs) I mean, why go there in the first place? Because He's leading you there. It's necessary. But don't worry about it, He's with you. That's the best part. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. <laughs> There's the discipline, right? What's the rod about? The rod's discipline. Jesus rules with a rod of iron in the in the millennium. The staff, why, do, why does the staff have that hook on the top? You know, scoop up that sheep, grab that sheep, bring them back. You know, at a certain point, you learn to appreciate the boundaries, okay? Particularly if you've got a teenager or almost a teenager, okay? It's good to have boundaries. They won't like them, but at some point they will eventually come to appreciate them. All right, maybe not right away. They made that, you know, you've got particular sheep that are constantly constantly testing that that uh, the boundaries. Well, <laughs> You can learn to appreciate it. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. I tell you, my dad, I I came to appreciate. And it pretty much happened the day that Bob was born. (laughs) Because prior to that, prior to that, uh, you know, teenage arrogance and you know everything. And you just, because you know everything, you know that everything your dad thinks he knows is wrong. And dad's a moron until Bob was born. And, and just like that, overnight, my dad became a genius. Brilliant. Overnight. Call him on the phone, ask questions. It's a great perspective. All right. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Why am I eating in the presence of my enemies? Can we deal with them first and then eat? Why are we not dealing with them? Why don't you kill them? Why am I eating? You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. And then, surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. So here's shepherding. I love this passage shepherding. All right. Other shepherding passages Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We don't think of that one as often as Psalm 23. But Psalm 78 is a shepherding passage. And it's a long shepherding passage. Um. Yeah, but I think if we uh, just look to the end, don't read the whole thing. Just uh, look at the end of Psalm 78, verse 70. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. Notice what does it take to prepare leaders and it's not always the seminary that people think it's not always the graduate school it's not always the uh the uh, qualifications that people the expectations that people have and i find this interesting from the care of ewes with suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd jacob his people and it it was the perfect training it was the perfect seminary course so he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. What do you want with the men that you're training to be pastors? Integrity of heart. Look at the qualifications in 1, Peter chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then also skillful hands. He can't be a novice. He's got to have wisdom. He's got to have skill. Integrity of heart and skillful hands. Those are the shepherds that God will put into service. When we hold an ordination council, when we have a, an exam, when we bring in pastors and we evaluate, we're not evaluating, well, yeah, we're evaluating theology and doctrine to make sure that they're equipped and that they can teach according to their convictions and they know their doctrine. But then the integrity of their heart, the skill of their hands, are they prepared to handle a flock? At which point we lay on hands and identify with them in the identification of ordination. All right. There's more. Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Micah 5, Micah 7, Zechariah 11, Zechariah 13, John 10, John 21, Acts 20, and 1 Peter 5. We'll come back to this next week and continue on. and We'll, we'll spend next week looking at these uh, shepherding passages of Scripture. They're significant. They are significant. When, when the Apostle, when, when Jesus Christ restores the Apostle John or Apostle Peter, To full favor in ministry, he uses the shepherding imperative to do it. And I think we better pay attention to that. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study. Pray that these shepherding passages would have impact. It's not just for the pastor of the church. We're all shepherds, Father. Husbands and wives are shepherds to their children and grandchildren. Uh, Husbands are shepherds to their wives. Uh, Older believers are shepherds to younger believers, Father, in the discipleship function of, of a local church. And Father, I pray that we would come to understand our shepherding expectations. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.